don't we think? <laughs> young doesn't mean it to be depressing. I actually really like Young. <laughs> Did you find him depressing? Or just, you know, ooh, this is so great. I, there were a lot of, like, he uses a lot of exclamation points. Yes. And um, he sometimes got very worried with his language, but when he actually calmed down and started saying things, he was very, um, he had a lot of interesting things to say. Uh-huh. But he wasn't trying to approach them. Yes. Okay, so what in particular did you find interesting? Just um, stuff about, like, um, he called man the infinite insect, and just mm-hmm. like how man is impressive to man. Just yeah. That whole passage was, I thought, really interesting. Yeah, that's a really um, amazing passage. It's How many of you have read Pascal um, in your... Okay, well, you should. Um, uh, Pascal it, the Philosopher? Pascal the Philosopher, yeah. You're back. It's nice. Um... Not sitting where you usually sit, but you're back. Uh, Pascal, have you read him, or are you just wondering I if that's... I know about his um, wager. do or die, like, might as well believe in God. Because if there is a God, then you're good, and if there isn't, then you're screwed, that kind of, the, rest of the wager. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, Pascal's most famous these days, besides being a programming language. And actually, he's most famous for Pascal's Triangle. Um, I was going to say, I have his triangle. Yes. Um, but he's uh, most famous as a philosopher for, the, for his wager. Um, but there's a lot in Jung um, that seems probably out of Pascal, or is certainly thinking in the same way in the passage that you're referring to um, about the um, bizarre situation that we find ourselves as humans. Um, at one, one line is that we're halfway between non-entity and God. Um, and so halfway to God sounds pretty good, but halfway to nothing um, sounds pretty scary. And um, we're just perched there. Um, Pascal's, uh, one of Pascal's famous descriptions is, is that we find ourselves on a raft in the middle of nothingness, um, floating on this tiny, tiny little raft on a sea of nothingness, and um, if we were to look over the sides of the raft, we would be appalled, and some people do, and they're appalled, and some people just kind of hunch in the middle of the raft and pretend that that's not what's happening. Um, So that's kind of where we are with Jung. Pascal is saying all this in order to get us to believe in God. Um, And, or, that's putting it way too simply. In order to show us that there's no hope that we could possibly have but God. That is, if you give a vivid enough description of um, the state that we're in as human beings, if you give a vivid enough reminder of the state that we're in as human beings, um, our only hope to keep us from utter despair, which any clear-sighted person would have, um, seeing where we are, our only hope would be belief in God. Um, Belief that if there were a God who wanted um, us to believe in him and to um, give ourselves to him, to make the decision to dedicate ourselves to him and to trust in him, um, this is how God would arrange things. That is, that we would have enough desire to want God to save us and enough fear and horror um, to see what would happen if he didn't. And we wouldn't have knowledge of God 
um, because knowledge would then mean we could, we could ignore everything about life. Um, it's the anxiety which can drive us in the right direction if we're open-minded about the right direction. But it all has to come from ourselves. Um, the anxiety has to be um, an anxiety that we can never simply say, oh, now I solved the problem, now it's okay. Um, so that uh, for Pascal, for Jung, for Romanticism, again, we're talking about this uh, in a pre-romantic context, and for, you know, I'm sort of assuming um, for the sake of um, uh, rhetoric that you know what Romanticism is, um, but I can also assume that, in fact, you do, because um, all our literary education is essentially post-romantic, everything that anyone who's an English major in the 21st century um, knows about being an English major is um, essentially a romantic conception of literature. Um, that conception, as I said on Tuesday, was kind of invented by not only Wordsworth and Coleridge and not um, earliest Wordsworth and Coleridge, but largely by Wordsworth and Coleridge. So um, partly what, what by talking about um, Young and Collins and Gray, as pre-romantic poets, partly what I'm doing um, is giving you one way to start thinking about what romanticism itself is. Um, we'll look at romanticism when we get to Blake and Wordsworth. But again, what it essentially is, is a very deeply introspective and intense um, consideration of what it means to find yourself in a world um, which is... Um, unstable, where you yourself are unstable. Um, the descriptions that you get in Young, and also in Gray. Um, Gray may not be as obviously depressing, but for some people he's more depressing than Young. Um, is what for the Romantic poets, that's where they start out, is um, perceiving themselves in the world that way. And then the question is, what do you do with that self-perception? Um, in the world? How do, you, how do you respond to it? How do you cope with it? So for Pascal and for Jung, you cope with it through um, a kind of desperate belief in God. Um, the fact that it's desperate um, is for people like um, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, you know, the sort of new atheists, um, just shows that it's superstition. That is, that shows that belief in God only comes out of human despair. And so, so God is a bug in the system by which um, we know our own mortality. Um, the standard, well, I wasn't going to go down this road, but I will. Um, the, the way Stephen Jay Gould put it was that human brains evolved um, as they did in order to be able to deal with the world much more successfully than any other organism had ever done. But one of the unfortunate spandrels, to use his famous word, one of the unfortunate side effects of the intelligence with which we are able to cope with the world is that we know that we will die. Um, and other creatures don't know that about themselves. Yeah, maybe elephants do, but really they don't. Um, we know, we think about death a lot. And it's not really helpful to think about death. It's despair-inducing. So one theory of religion is, so um, in order to avoid this terrible knowledge, we invent God or gods um, and thereby um, give, us a, give ourselves um, a possible hope of immortality and that allows us to go on. 
Um, so that's basically the, the Dawkins, um, Christopher Hitchens view of religion by which um, in a way our knowledge of death is a bug in a system which allows us to cope with the world most of the time really, really more successfully than other animals can. Um, but unfortunately, there's a truth that we know that, we, that it doesn't do us any good to know, namely that we will die. Um, for Jung and Pascal, that's not a bug, it's a feature. Um, that is, the fact that we know we'll die is the best possible, not proof, but argument for religious truth. Because, and this is a little bit what Dryden is saying in a somewhat milder way in Religio Laici. Um, because not knowing but hoping is what God, that's the position God wants us to embrace. If we had knowledge, it would be an easy position to embrace and it wouldn't require anything of us. If we had no hope, we would simply despair and nothing would be required of us. But having hope without knowledge, if you were designing a religion from first principles, that's what you would want your um, communicants to feel, hope without knowledge. Um, because then it's a matter of, um, of cultivating your own soul, working on your own soul, keeping hope alive. Um, the audacity of hope, lots of political slogans, um, but keeping hope alive, which nevertheless requires work and requires you to understand um, what it is that you are keeping hope alive against and how much difficulty um, is involved in keeping hope alive. Um, so that is essentially what Pascal and Jung um, and others, um, that's, that's the attitude they take. The Romantics are essentially not religious. Um, some of them claimed to be, and some of them believed they were, and some of them um, became actually religious, but the great Romantic poets, um, their religion, if they had one, was the human soul rather than God. And for them, they were interested, intensely interested, um, in seeing this as a feature in a different way, which is that our knowledge of death is the price we pay for the depth into which we can experience, our, the depth at which we can experience our own subjectivity. That our knowledge of death is the way that we can get most deeply into our own souls and the souls of others and into thinking about our own souls and the souls of others. The price we pay for thought is knowing that we will die. Um, and for the Romantics, that is something that they are arguing is a fair trade, um, that it's better to know that you will die um, even with all the despair that that gives you or that that threatens you with. Um, it's better to know that um, and to feel Therefore, your own depth. So it's not that. So it's not that death removes depth from human experience. It's not that eternal death, although that's a misleading phrase. It's not that the fact that you die forever removes depth from human experience, which is what um, someone like um, 
older religious um, poets might argue. Um, it's rather that the fact that you know you will die forever is what gives depth to human experience. And that is a typical and powerfully romantic um, attitude to take. That's what you will see the romantic poets, the romantic writers, um, finding ways of saying um, or ways of demonstrating or ways of feeling or ways of expressing or ways of communicating over and over again. Um, and that's a, that's a really important um, revolution in thought, in thought about the human soul and thought about human subjectivity that you get in Romanticism. But you can see it starting in, what, in the poets that we're looking at now, starting in Samuel Johnson, who in a lot of ways is doing, he didn't really like Young, but he's doing a lot of the same sorts of things that Young is doing in The Vanity of Human Wishes. That is giving you an absolutely <clears throat> despairing account of every aspect of human life, whether you're virtuous or not, um, without religion. Um, virtue doesn't save you either. Um, it's better to be virtuous than not. In local situations, you'll feel better about yourself. You'll do more kindness to others, and you won't screw up as quickly um, or die as young as if you're not virtuous. Um, but virtue doesn't save you. Um, virtue won't bring you happiness. That's an important thing to say. Jung is saying the same thing, that virtue is not its own reward. It doesn't bring happiness, not even virtue. Um, but um, for Johnson and for Jung, there's still the hope of some sort of um, uh, being driven towards God, um, being driven towards hope in God. Um, in the Romantics, there's sometimes lip service paid to that, um, but the great Romantic po poems don't have that conclusion. It's as though they have everything but the conclusion to Vanity of Human Wishes. Or the conclusion to Night Thoughts, which is still saying, so you have to, your only chance is God, um, which is what the speaker in Night Thoughts is saying. But those who, you know, but, but it's interesting, um, particularly interesting today, um, to hear Leah saying she likes it, Marielle saying she's depressed by it. Um, because in a way, it's not, I don't think it's that you guys are registering Young as saying anything different, but it's you're having a different reaction to um, the experience of having to think about your own subjectivity um, and think about what it's like to be cast adrift in the world. The 20th century German philosopher um, Heidegger has this idea that he calls thrownness, um, the experience of being thrown. And he says, that's a romantic idea, that our experience in the world is that we find ourselves thrown here. Um, that's what it means to be a human mind, a human subject. Here we are, thrown into this world. We don't know from where, um, we don't know what it means, but that's where we are. Um, and it's the experience of thrownness that there are different reactions to that universal human experience that you can have. Um, and it's that experience that, that Young and Collins um, and Gray are describing. Um, it's also, you know, what we saw in Collins in the Ode to Fear, which we didn't quite get to finish, but okay, um, is, um, again, that, that, um, that self-reflexive thinking 
about the experience of fear. Fear is a bad thing to feel. No one likes to feel afraid as a first order feeling. But some people as a second order feeling like to feel afraid because they like to feel what it's like to have a first order feeling they don't like. Um, anyone who goes to horror movies knows an obvious and everyday version of this. Um, but for Collins, it's um, thinking about fear is a way of thinking about um, the human soul's relation to the world. So if you like Collins or if you like Jung, there's a way in which you like fear, in which what you're getting is um, an experience of human despair um, or, a, or a depiction of an experience of human despair which is itself worthwhile to have because it then gives you a way of thinking through human depth. Um, so the fact that you even have that experience allows you to think through human depth. Nietzsche very famously said, a very romanticism in a one-liner is, better to have the void as purpose than to be void of purpose. And that would be, being void of purpose is what we would be if we didn't know we were going to die. Having the void as purpose, that's not so great, but it's better than being void of purpose. Um, and that, again, is the romantic idea. So what you're seeing now in the mid to late 18th century, I'm going to say a little bit more about the sublime in a second, but what you're seeing now in the middle to late 18th century is the beginnings of poetry which is, which is really pushing these ideas, the beginnings of poetry that, are, that is going to really come into its own with Blake, whose illustrations to Gray I meant to bring today, and whose illustrations to Young um, I couldn't find my copy of, but um, I'll hope to find it by Tuesday. Um, but what you begin to see in Blake and Wordsworth and Coleridge um, and the Romantic Poets. Um, and the um, way this works in the sublime, we talked a little bit about the sublime already. We talked about Edmund Burke's um, inquiry into um, the um, sublime and beautiful. Um, and we talked about the difference between the experience of the sublime and the experience of the beautiful. So the way Burke does it, we didn't go into any detail about this, so I, I just will a little bit now. Romantic poetry is, um, its characteristic mode is sublimity rather than beauty. Um, it's about the sublime, not about the beautiful. Um, the sublime we already talked about in terms of landscape are things like um, the Alps, storms at sea, um, the, the, um, the dazzling and dizzying magnitude of the starry sky, as Kant puts it, um, the um, Grand Canyon, um, landscapes which in no way are orderly or regular or have any of the aspects that we generally think beautiful things have, like symmetry. Um, symmetry seems to be a fairly universal component of things that people think are beautiful. And yet there's this other thing which is extremely asymmetrical, like <clears throat> mountains or um, thunderstorms or hurricanes or whatever, which nevertheless we have a very powerful aesthetic response to um, Burke and Kant and other people are noticing more powerful than our response to the beautiful. A flower can be the perfect image of beauty, um, and yet somehow a violent storm 
is aesthetically more powerful for us, and not only because the storm is powerful, but because somehow the power of that storm gets rendered aesthetic in a way that, that a flower can't, even though it may be a perfect exemplar of beauty. So um, people in the 18th century started trying to figure out what is the psychological difference between an experience of the sublime and an experience of the beautiful. And the way Burke, who was friends with a lot of the people we're reading, the way Burke put it was to distinguish between two different feelings that he says are easily confused, um, in which he names pleasure and delight. And what pleasure is, is it's a positive feeling. You see a flower, and that makes your day a little bit better. You smell a flower, and it makes your day a little bit better still. So pleasure is something that things are going along at a fairly neutral level, as they do most of the time. And then something nice happens, and it feels nice, and it feels good. Um, and that's pleasure. And beauty is what it gives you pleasure of that sort. The sublime, he says is an experience of delight. But the experience of the sublime is not, oh, I see that, and that delights me. Um, for Burke, delight is a much stronger word than that. And delight, he says, is essentially a recovery from terror. That is um, an example that uh, is um, contemporaneous would be bungee jumping. Um, that is, you have an experience of sheer terror followed by, but the cord held, and now I'm going back up, and things are slowing down. And it's that two-step experience of terror followed by rescue or safety, um, but an experience which is not, oh, something terrible happened, luckily I was rescued, but rather it's a single, exper it's a single experience that has these two components within it, terror followed by safety. So you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and that could kill you. But you also know you're not going to jump. So there's terror, but also the safety of the fact that you're at the edge, but not over the edge. Um, you look at Niagara Falls, and if you went under it, it would kill you. Or you look at a sheer cliff, and if it fell upon you, it would kill you. Um, but it isn't going to. And so your mind does a moment of simple apprehension. That is, here is this thing that could be fatal. And that's almost unconscious or instinctual. And then another part of your mind is simultaneously knowing that it's not fatal this time, that you're not going to jump or be pushed off the edge. Yeah? I was thinking. Um but what about sublime in the relation to music? I, I think that sometimes when I listen to music, there's like a, like a sublime feeling that I get, but I'm not terrified of box compositions or something like that. And I don't know how that could relate to being a recovery from terror when I'm just kind of sitting in my seat listening and just enjoying it. Okay, so partly what you're... There, there, there are a couple, there, there are an, actually an enormous number of things to... Um, ways that, that the theory um, necessarily expands. But very briefly, you're describing an experience of a composition, not an experience of something of a natural object. Um, so you're describing what it's like to listen to Bach. Um, the sublime originally, as I mentioned before, 
was a term invented by Longinus. Remember we were talking about perihupsos and peribathos? That is, Pope wrote this, or the Scriblerians wrote this parody book on lowness or patheticness in poetry, and um, that was a parody of Longinus's of elevation, perihupsos, of, of height, um, which is usually translated as on the sublime. Um, and Longinus is talking about the experience of poetry, not the experience of landscape, but the experience of poetry. So let's put Bach in the, experience, in the category of art, whether poetry or painting or music, um, versus the natural sublime, which is what Burke is talking about. Um, mountains, the Grand Canyon, storms at sea, and so on. Now there is a reason to combine them, but that's a, that's a, that's a substantially later step in the argument. Um, it's worth noticing that they're combinable, that we will use the same vocabulary about mountains as about Bach. Um, and that's, that should be surprising, that you would say of, um, of a Bach cantata the same thing that you would say about Mont Blanc. Um, and it's not that you're saying, oh yes, Bach cantata towers over anyone else's cantatas the way, Mark, the way Mont Blanc towers over the other mountains. That's just BS. That's not what you're registering when you say they're both sublime. It's not how, how much greater Bach is than his contemporaries. You don't, he doesn't have to be greater than his contemporaries for you to find him sublime. His contemporaries could be just as good or even better, and you'd still find him sublime. So what is it about Bach that makes you feel in ways that prompt you to use the same vocabulary that you might feel about seeing Mont Blanc or seeing Mount Everest. That's the question that these philosophers were asking themselves. It's not an easy question. Um, so you're right to ask that question. Um, but let's just, let me just finish with Burke. So Burke's idea of the natural sublime. The last section of Burke's book is a section called Of Words, in which he tries to figure out how words can be sublime. Um, having given this long account of how mountains can be sublime. And the question is, but what about words? Where does that come from? And that's where we start getting an answer to the Bachian question, you could say. Um, but what Berg says is that the sublime is essentially a feeling of recovery. Essentially, he doesn't put it this way, simultaneous with the feeling of terror. So that it's not that you were locked up you know, in prison without food or water for a week, but then someone found you and, oh man, does that feel good. Um, that's great, but that's not the sublime. The sublime is when those feelings in, in one way are discriminable and yet in another way are, um, are inextricably linked. Um, so the feeling of terror and the feeling of terror at a distance at some distance, at a slight distance, at just enough distance, is simultaneous. And the recovery from sheer terror, that is, Burke describes it quantitatively, that we start out at a neutral level, at a neutral height. Pleasure, if we're graphing our experience, pleasure is a lift from that neutral. And if you were to graph an experience of pleasure, you're walking, you're walking, you're walking, you see a flower, it's really lovely, then you walk away from the flower and you forget about it. And you've just done this little mogul um, in, in your daily round. Whereas the experience of the sublime is you're walking, you're walking, you're walking. Oh my God, the Grand Canyon, that's really terrifying, but I'm okay. Um, and then you're back basically where you were. 
the absolute value of the um, quantity of difference of affect that you feel is much greater in an experience of the sublime than in an experience of the beautiful. Um, so Burke basically says delight is essentially a negative experience canceled out or a negative experience recovered from. And the feeling of delight is the feeling of recovery. But the quantity of recovery is much greater than any quantity you can have simply by having the experience of the beautiful. Um, oh, look how beautiful that Greek column is. Yeah, okay, so it's kind of round and smooth. That's nice. Um, but, oh my god, the Grand Canyon. Help! But it's actually okay. You're going, you're quantitatively having a much more intense experience. So for Burke, and not only for Burke, for lots of philosophers, it turns out that we, our minds are somehow constructed so that quantity of experience that ends um, without destruction of some sort, a quantity of experience that leads you where you were, um, gives more, um, uh, does more to us if the quantity is greater. So an experience of the beautiful after the fact is I had a little bit of quantitative experience. That was kind of interesting. Now it's over. The experience of the sublime after the fact is I was just blown away. And so even though the beautiful is a positive experience and the sublime is a negative experience, after the fact, all that matters, or what finally matters, is the absolute value of the experience. And that, for Burke, is how the sublime works. Is it gives you an experience with much more absolute value. And humans are constructed for obvious evolutionary reasons. We wouldn't survive if we were constructed this way. Um, humans are constructed so that negative experiences loom much larger for us than positive ones do. Negative experiences are much bigger experiences than positive ones are. And what but that do Burke, I mean, excuse me, do Young and Gray say? Except that negative experiences are larger than positive ones. But what that means is that poetry about negative experiences is poetry about that records something of far greater intensity than poetry about positive experiences. Here we're talking about positive experiences like that's a lovely flower, not experiences like love, where the whole point about love is that it's probably a <clears throat> negative experience rather than a positive one. I don't mean this in a, oh no, look at him, he's against love. Um, but rather that love is about longing and despair and anxiety and isolation and fear and so on. Um, and all of that is technically a negative experience, but it's an experience of very great intensity that can lead to very great poetry. That's not, that's still by no means an answer to your question. Um, but it is... Um, a place where you can start seeing how we do the um, transition from talking about the thing described, nature, natural landscapes, or human fate, to the thing describing poetry that takes these things as 
their sub as its subject, and um, so so Mary L stands for that's a really terrible experience, and Leah is, but the poetry about it is really intense. Is that? Well, I keep thinking about um, Roland Barthes talked about. There's a studium and a punctum, and it's the punctum is something that like hits yeah. you, yes. and then it's, it's not it's not like terror like you would see at the Grand Canyon. But there's always like you know if if I'm going along and I'm reading and I all of a sudden hit the line, oh, what a miracle, two man is man, triumphantly distressed. Yes, And that nice. hits you. Yeah. It's still a kind of, it's a sublime feeling, right. even though it's not, and you can still get that in Bach as well, like a, you know, a sudden chord change, a sudden, you know, like, sforzando, like, there's a, you know, there are changes in music, and there are things that are, you know, a, a sudden resolving of a dissonant chord can be sublime. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right, and to think about it in those Barthian terms are, are, is very helpful. Um, but he's a romantic. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's he's as romantic as um, as literary critics ever get, um, which is considerable. I mean, because he's one of the greats. Um, but yeah, but but the point is that it's that there is a moment where, you know, what makes a punctum a punctum is the intensity of that that experience, and intensity in general. Um, is negative, but a negative which is a meta-positive. That is, intensity itself is negative because we, if things are okay, then biologically we want them to stay okay. Um, but having an intense experience and feeling it as positive is because we are suddenly um, aware of the depth of something. And depth is scary, but depth is also good. I mean, just the very idea of depth just, just tells it to you. Um, you know, depth is what you can drown in. Depth is what you can fall into and die. Um, and yet we like depth. Um, we feel that being deep is better than being shallow. Um, and that's because that gives us a fuller experience of what it means to be human. Um, Gilles Deleuze, the, the uh, 20th century French philosopher, and he writes about literature too, um, has an amazing sentence. It's actually in an essay of his on Nietzsche where he says that an indescribable joy always rushes out to us from great books, even if what they speak of is horror, despair, and depth. And it's that indescribable joy. Um, you know, he's using the same vocabulary as Bart, actually. It's that indescribable joy um, that is both the mystery and the fact that romanticism registers. Um, and so if you like young or gray, um, the reason you like them is because they're so good at making you feel the um, intensity of, of our despair. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a funny mystery about human beings that really good descriptions of the intensity of our despair, if you have a certain kind of literary vocation, fill you with pleasure. Um, that's why that's why poems of despairing love can be found in every culture and every age, um, because somehow that despair itself gives well not not pleasure in the Burkean sense gives you joy, the expression of despair gives joy. Um, that, in a nutshell, is what is what these people are trying to explain. Why does the why does despair well expressed give joy, especially and maybe primarily when it's fictional. That is, it's, if someone comes to you and they're really miserable, 
um, and they're about to die, you don't think, oh, I'm filled with joy. That would be just sheer sadism. Um, but if you read a poem about it, it can fill you with joy. Um, and Burke, again, is trying to explain that a little bit as the because it's the step back. It's the experience of it as a real experience, and yet cognitively you know simultaneously that it's not a real danger. Um, it's what a real danger. It could be real, but isn't. Um, so you start getting into an interesting emotional insight into fiction. Fiction is something that um, has an interesting and illuminating relation to the emotions, um, which is that it's emotion at a slight distance, and it's that slight distance that allows you to think deeply about what it means to be human. And that, again, this is, these are all ways of trying to characterize in these pre-romantic writers what it is that is approaching in the form of romanticism. George? Was there anything about the second half of the 18th century that got people to think about how desperate things were? You mean historically? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want to try to make a, a historical rather than a literary historical argument, which is that um, all literary movements, I mean, you, of course you can, but I think it would be opportunistic. It's right. always the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Um, were, were there any thoughts like this going on in the ancient uh, poets? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that it's, uh, there are thoughts like this going on always. You know, I, I think you can find stuff like this in Eloise in, in Eloise at Abelard. Eloise at Eloard. Um, there's actually a French surrealist poet, a really good French surrealist poet whose name is Eloard. Um, but, um, you know, my, it, it, I tend to be a lumper, um, as you probably know when it comes to literature. That is, I tend to try to find, you, don't, you know lumpers and splitters? Okay, so this is an anthropological distinction um, about how um, people think about phenomena, how, how people think about phenomena that they think discursively about. So there are basically two ways that you can, you can do things and two kinds of papers you can write. Um, a lumping paper says something like, um, uh, you know, Pope and Shakespeare and William Burroughs and Artaud, they're really all doing the same thing. Um, ultimately, they're all doing exactly the same thing. Um, and that's lumping. Um, that's basically finding something in common um, and um, seeing all of these things as different approaches to this one essential thing. Um, splitting is something like, you know, it may look like um, Dryden and Pope were similar, but really you can't think of any two poets more different than Dryden or Pope. In every single way, um, they, have, they have vastly different ways of thinking about things. And there what you do is you look at things that that on the surface are the differences between them are very, very little. And then you just start, you put a wedge in and you start showing how much those differences matter. Um, so basically thought, according to the anthropology of lumping and splitting, um, all thought takes the form of taking a received idea, A and B are different, and actually seeing that A and B are not different. You know, Casablanca, Fight Club, same movie, same movie. Um, and then um, the um, splitting takes the form 
of um, taking two things that seem very similar and saying, no, they're absolutely vastly different. You know, Top Hat and Swing Time never have two movies been more different. Don't be, don't be deceived by the fact that they're both Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and that they sing and dance and get together at the end. Um, that's just surface trash. That's illusion. Um, the depth of the difference between those movies, if you don't see how different those movies are, you know nothing about movies and nothing about the world and nothing about art and nothing about love. Um, so, um, Not that you're a lover. <laughs> no, I, I, no I, think, I think the best thing to do is to, well, what people tend to do is um, split when others lump and lump when others split. And that's what you should always do. It's like blackjack. Is that lumping or splitting when I say it's like blackjack? It's lumping. It's just like blackjack. All thought is like blackjack. Um, and we all split on eights, which we should never do, but we do. Because we'll die. Um, so then the meta question is, um, so are splitting and lumping like each other or different from each other? Well, that's the question. Do you want to lump splitting and lumping? together or do you want to split splitting and lumping apart um, that should be your next brief for your class <laughs> yes <laughs> and now you see how the heroic couplet is all about lumping and splitting isn't it the anthropology of lumping and splitting the heroic couplet same thing <laughs> no but it is I mean it's it's antithetical balancing, where the idea of balancing is either to show the two things are like each other, or to show the two things are not like each other. Um, and that's lumping and splitting. So the heroic couplet is the form in which thought proceeds through a judgment as to whether to lump or whether to split. But at any rate, I tend to be, in literature, I tend to be a lumper, which is to say that I do think that um, that all literature finds um, a way to, to um, well, I guess what I would say is, is that um, ultimately, um, for me, praising a work of literature is, in a sense, um, always showing that it actually does have the perspective on the world that every other great work of literature has. Um, and in that sense, I'm a lumper. Um, but any writer is a splitter. All writers are splitters. Um, and the reason is that they all have to claim that they all have to figure out something new to say. And so what they have to say is, it's not what Pope and Dryden were doing. What they were doing is wrong, wrong, wrong. Because they weren't talking about... Um, what nature is really like and what the human mind perceiving in nature is really perceiving. They were talking about what card games are like or what um, restoration politics is like or what hypocrisy in a city in a particular time in a particular place is like. Um, but they weren't talking about um, the eternal human experience of seeing winter come in and feeling despair over that. To read Pope, you need footnotes. To read me, you don't. Um, that's something that Thompson would say, for example. Um, it's also, I mean, it's, I think it's a very helpful way of, of thinking about these things. But um, look, let's go to, uh, there, there really wasn't supposed to be as much wind up. Uh, we can talk more about this on Tuesday, though. Uh, read the smart, 
which there's not much of in um, these two anthologies. And we'll talk about SMART, um, but we'll go on with, um, with Young and Gray. But let's look at the Elegy in the Country Churchyard. Um, did, had anyone read it before? Um, and for those of you who hadn't, were you surprised by how familiar it was? Um, it's one of those poems that um, has lent a lot to the language. Also, I, I need to apologize. I unaccountably said, I realized after class on Tuesday, that the um, Ode on the Death of Favorite Cat was Goldsmith, which I think I was just confusing Goldfish with Goldsmith. Um, and then I said, wait a second. So um, that's what I think is technically called a brain fart. Um, so I apologize. Um, eh, let's start with the Ode on Distant Prospects of Eton College on, uh, um, in both books. Um, so the situation here is that Gray has gone to Eton College. Has anyone been to Eton? Has any, does any, can anyone picture it? You saw it, you walked around in it? Yeah. So it's, it's right across the river from Windsor Castle, right near Legoland, actually. Um, but not back then. Um, did you go to Legoland? A what? Legoland? No. No, okay. <laughs> uh, you should next time you're there. Okay. Um, Eaton College is actually, um, has the oldest continuously used classroom in the world. Um, it's a, it's a, um, it's what we would call a prep school in America. It's a public school. It's, it's uh, you go to Eton and then you go to university. Um, and um, it's an unbelievably gorgeous place. Um, you know, it makes, uh, I don't know, it makes any university you've ever seen look second rate. Um, and it's one of the oldest schools in the world. And it does have the oldest continually used classroom, a classroom that's been used every term fall, spring, and winter. Um, fall, winter, and spring. Um, since around 1100. Um, and uh, it's also a very Tony place, but um, Gray has gone there. Shelley will go there. He hated it. Um, Gray has gone there, and now um, he's looking down at it. And if you remember um, Denham's poem, Cooper's Hill, um, which is the poem in a way we started with in this class and which is an, which is an act of what's called loco-descriptive poetry that is poetry descriptive of a place um, that's the tradition that a hundred years later Gray is still writing in um, but writing in it very differently so if we, if, the, if we had a little bit of a complaint about Thompson that you don't have enough of a sense of the seer in the description of the thing seen that's very different in Gray um, in the Ode on Distant Prospect of Eton College and in the Ode um, um, in the Elegy in the Country Churchyard, um, the speaker, the seer, um, is present in the way he sees everything that he sees. So there he is looking at the distant spires, ye distant spires, ye antique towers that crown the watery glade. So it's a distant prospect. He's seeing it from far away. Ye distant spires, ye antique towers that crown the watery glade, where grateful science still adores her Henry's holy shade. Um, and ye that from the stately brow of Windsor's heights, the expanse below of grove, of lawn, of mead, 
survey whose turf, whose shade, whose flowers among wanders the hoary Thames along his silver winding way. So he's looking at the landscape and looking at the towers towering over the landscape. Ah, happy hills, ah, pleasing shade. So it's all really beautiful. And then the really surprising line, ah, fields beloved in vain. And what's really surprising there are the words in vain. So it's this beautiful description of my old school, as Steely Dan puts it, um, but he's never going back. Um, beautiful, beautiful description, but what was the point of it? The in vain is the really amazing and surprising phrase here. Ah, fields beloved in vain, where once my careless childhood strayed, a stranger yet to pain. I hadn't experienced pain back then in my childhood. This is the poem the alumni office doesn't want to be taught, by the way. Um, the whole point about giving money to Brandeis, which you should do after you graduate, is that's a way of thinking it wasn't in vain, that you still belong, that these fields that you love so much still matter to you. Ah, chapel fields, which I still love. No? Oh, well. Um, <laughs> I feel the gales that from ye blow a momentary bliss bestow as waving fresh their gladsome wing my weary soul they seem to soothe and redolent of joy, of joy and youth to breathe a second spring. Um, Wordsworth will pick this up in the Intimations Ode in the famous mysterious line the winds come to me from the fields of sleep. Um, a line that many people have thought about for a long time time. So I feel the gales that from ye blow a momentary bliss bestow, as waving fresh their gladsome wing my weary soul they seem to soothe, and redolent of joy and youth to breathe a second spring. Say, Father Thames, for thou hast seen full many a sprightly race, disporting on my margin green, the paths of pleasure trace, who foremost now delight to cleave with pliant arm thy glassy wave. So that's a kind of epic moment that is who's swimming in the Thames, say, O oh, river god, who now is swimming in you, who is the captive, the captive linnet, which enthrall, um, which boys are catching birds now, um, what idle progeny succeed to chase the rolling circle's speed or urge the flying ball, um, and as the footnote tells you, rolling circle there means hoop. Um, and we have, um, I think the footnote says this or doesn't. Um, yeah, it's like mock heroic diction, it says correctly. That is, that, that this is like Pope, so here, here let's lump. It's like Pope. It's describing in mock heroic diction, um, not a card game, but people chasing hoops across the lawn um, and describing that as though it's something out of the Iliad to chase the rolling circle speed or urge the flying ball just means they're, they're racing after hoops and tossing, ball, tossing balls around. Um, but that's given to you in mock heroic diction. But for a different reason from Pope. Pope is deflating using mock heroic diction. Um, Pope is making fun of what he's describing. Whereas um, Gray isn't quite doing that. Um, it's more like he's saying um, this is what you're going to get in terms of 
human experience, it all just turns out to be hoops and balls. But for kids, it's really serious. Play is serious for kids. Um, and it's, it's more sympathetic to describe it this way. Um, it's almost engaging in imaginative play, where the imaginative play can be very, very serious in tone indeed. And Gray is being sympathetic to that. Um, so it's partly, no, it's just a hoop, but it's also, yeah, they took it seriously. Not seriously as in seriously, but seriously as in um, play which is, which is serious play, play where people get really into it. Um, While some on earnest business bent, their murmuring labors ply against graver hours that bring constraint to sweeten liberty. So some are studying. Some bold adventurers disdain the limits of their little reign. So some of them are running off campus. Some bold adventurers disdain the limits of their little reign. They're not supposed to leave campus, but they are. And unknown regions dare descry. Still as they run, they look behind. They hear a voice in every wind and snatch a fearful joy. So they're scurrying off campus, and they think the masters are calling after them. Every time they hear a gust of wind, they're afraid they've been caught by some master. Um, and they get a fearful joy out of that. And again, that's, that's that proto-romantic um, combination of fear and joy, a fearful joy. Gay hope is theirs by fancy fed, less pleasing when possessed. So the idea of hoping is that fun is better than getting what you think you want. And here's what they experience. The tear for God as soon as shed, the sunshine of the breast, their buxom health of rosy hue, wild wit, invention ever new, and lively cheer of vigor born, the thoughtless day, the easy night, the spirits pure, the slumber's light that fly the approach of morn. So it's all just fun and games um, for these kids. Sure they cry, um, sure, sure um, uh, they're fearful, but all of it goes away as soon as it comes. Um, so that's childhood, and that's great. And then we get the turn, alas. Regardless of their doom, the little victims play. Um, here doom means, which um, it doesn't mean one of you in your papers, or maybe even a couple of you, thought doom always meant a bad thing. Here it does. Here it has the modern meaning of doom. Um, doom a little bit before this could mean fate, good or bad. Um, but here it's, here it's the modern we're doomed meaning of doom that we're getting here. So they don't know what's going to happen to them, which is something bad. Alas, regardless of their doom, the little victims play. So that's chilling, that to see them there now as victims. Um, they're just having fun. Um, anyone know the Ode on a Grecian Urn? Keats's poem? Um, yeah, he might be thinking about this. Um, that is, who are these coming to the sacrifice? Um, so alas, regardless of their doom, the little victims play. No sense have they of ills to come, nor care beyond today. Yet see how all around them wait the ministers of human fate and black misfortune's baleful train. Ah, show them where in ambush stand to seize their prey, the murderous band. Ah, tell them they are men. So now, okay, so that's grim. 
Um, and part of its grimness is that they're afraid of the masters who might see them just clownishly running off campus. But the masters don't see that, and the masters aren't calling them back. There are masters there, though, whom they don't see and who they don't know to be afraid of, namely the ministers of human fate. Um, and they're crowding around, and they're in no hurry to grab these kids. The kids can, do, can try to run off campus, can try to do whatever they want, but they're not going to get away. Um, this is a poem. You're from England, right? Yeah. So did you study this poem in school? Um, I don't think so. No, we have unlimited curriculum. Uh-huh. Because I, I kind of think J.K. Rowling did. And um, I was about to say with assurance, but then I realized that you could contradict me. <laughs> yes, every school child in England is made to learn this poem. So, oh well. All but one. Um, but I do think that, that uh, if Harry Potter came to mind here, it's, that is um, not wrong um, for, for Harry Potter to come to mind. Um, so yeah, shut there an amber stand to seize their prey, the murderous band. I'll tell them they are men. And then here's the prediction of their future. But the thing to see is when he says, ah, see, yet see how all around him wait the ministers of human fate. That's part of the prospect um, that he sees. Prospect means view forward, literally. It means um, a view in the forward direction. Spect as in spectacle. Um, that is from the Latin word meaning to see, spectare. Um, and pra as in pro, looking forward. So prospect is a place that you look forward. When you talk about the future in prospect, it's because you're looking forward in the future. But he doesn't mean prospect as looking into his own future in the title of this poem, Ode on a Distant Prospect. He means just that he can see around. And what he sees from where he is is something that the kids that he's looking at don't see. But he can see them and tell us to see them, namely the ministers of human fate. He sees that. Why does he see it? Because he is far enough away from Eaton now, um, where in vain he once thought he could love, which in vain he once thought he could love forever. He's far away from it now in both time and space that he can see what surrounds these kids who look safe but aren't. If any of you know Blake's songs of innocence and of experience, um, that's what those songs are about. The world, of, the world is seen by the eyes of the innocent and then the world is seen, the world of the innocent as seen by the eyes of the experienced. How many people know about the songs of innocence and of experience? Um, so the point about those songs in general, this isn't strictly true of every pairing, nor are all the poems paired, um, but the point about those songs is that um, in the Songs of Innocence, we get a lot of descriptions of the world from a child's point of view. In a lot of their paired poems, and even in some of the unpaired poems, we get the same children seen from a more distant and experienced point of view. So we see children who think they're fine in the Songs of Innocence, and then we see those same children described in the Songs of Experience, and we realize they're not fine that the little victims are regardless of their doom in the Songs of Innocence. So again, you can see, if you know that bit of Blake, you can see 
um, again, that where those ideas are already taking root before Blake, um, a decade before Blake is born. Um, so these, here's their prediction, these shall the fury passions tear. Quite an interesting adjective, fury. The fury passions shall tear these. These shall the fury passions tear. The vultures of the mind. Here they are, disdainful anger, pallid fear, and shame that skulks behind. Or pining love shall waste their youth, or jealousy with rankling tooth that inly gnaws the secret heart and envy wan and faded care, grim-visaged, comfortless, despair, and sorrow's piercing dart. So next time you walk by Lemberg, <laughs> think about those kids. You could chant this to them. They'll laugh at you. And that's the point. <laughs> Ambition. This shall tempt to rise. Have you guys seen like the 7-Up, 14-Up, 21-Up series? Um, do you know about it? So Michael Apted for... Um, I guess about the almost 50 years now, he did a documentary of um, an English school, um, seven-year-olds in an English school. Um, I guess it was in 1964. Um, and um, he interviewed the kids and the teachers and, and gave some sense of the home life of the kids. And it was basically um, just a documentary about being seven years old in England in a lower middle class school in 1964. Um, what we would call a public school, not what the English call a public school. Um, and then he came back seven years later, so that would be 1971, um, to show what had happened in the last seven years. And then he got the idea that he was still pretty young and he could do this every seven years. So there's a series of movies now. Um, some of the people are dead, but um, there's a series of movies of the same cohort. It's a longitudinal series of movies of the same cohort of people who were in school together at age 7, 7-up, um, seven 14-up, up, 21-up, 28-up, 35-up, 42-up, and 49-up. Um, and if he lives, I guess he'll do 56-up in a couple of years. Um, and um, they, it turns out that Gray is right. Um, it's all very sad. Um, but it turns out that Gray is right. Um, the boyfriend of a friend of mine um, is one of the kids. Uh, the ex-boyfriend, pining love, they screwed them over. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a really interesting series of movies. Um, hard to watch. So ambition, this shall tempt to rise. Then, so this one will be tempted by ambition. Then whirl the wretch from high to bitter scorn, a sacrifice and grinning infamy. The stings of falsehood, those shall try. So he points to one, and he says, so this one. But he's not pointing to a particular one. He's just saying, here's one who's going to be messed up by ambition. Those, the stings of falsehood, those shall try. And hard unkindness altered eye that mocks the tear at force to flow. And keen remorse with blood defiled and moody madness laughing wild amid severest woe. Um, and do any of you know Beckett's play Happy Days? Uh, it's a great play. <laughs> uh, there's a character in it named Winnie who... Do you guys know Beckett at all if you read any of his plays? Waiting for Godot or Endgame or... Mm. All right, so Winnie... <laughs> I just need to tell you this. Um, 
in the first half, Happy Days is in two acts. In the first half, Winnie is buried up to her waist in sand. And um, the business that she does on stage is she does her face and um, she, she puts her stuff away in her pocketbook and she organizes stuff and she talks to her husband, Willie, who's kind of hanging around her sand hill. Um, and they're chatting and Winnie is, is relentlessly cheerful. And what she always says is, that is what I always find so wonderful. She describes the world and she keeps finding reasons to like it. And one of the things that she likes is that uh, she remembers her classics. She says, um, once classics come to help one through the day, that is what I find so wonderful. She remembers snatches of poetry, which she quotes. And she says, um, oh, not all, but some. Some come to help one through the day. And so she tries to quote poetry, and she quotes some. Um, and her quotations are always right, but she can't always remember all the words. Um, in the second half of the play, as you can, I'm sure, imagine, um, and probably saw coming, the sand pit is now up to her neck. And she's still very cheerful um, and talking about how wonderful she finds life um, as she's slowly approaching death. Um, and her classics continue to help her through the day. And at one point she quotes very happily and she says, oh yes, and what are those marvelous lines? And something, something laughing wild amid severest woe. Um, and so what Beckett expects you to recognize, because every school child will have studied Gray, um, what Beckett expects you to recognize is that what she's forgetting is moody madness laughing wild amid severest woe. So Winnie is happy to think that even in terrible woe, um, Gray is describing how people continue to laugh. Um, but what he's saying is, um, life gets terrible and some people just snap and they start laughing hysterically despite the severe woe that they've undergone. So when you go see Happy Days or read it, now you'll know. And something, something laughing wild amid severest woe is moody madness. Um, which is no doubt where Mad-Eyed Mooney comes from. Don't you think? <laughs> but you're not a lumper. No, not at all. <laughs> no, I am. I said it once. I, I always say it. Okay. Lo, in the veil of years beneath a grisly trooper seen the painful family of death more hideous than their queen. This, so death is the queen, but there's even death's painful family. This member of the family racks the joints. This fires the veins that every laboring sinew strains. That every laboring sinew strains. That one strains every laboring sinew. Those in the deeper vitals rage. Lo, poverty to fill the band that numbs the soul with icy hand and slow-consuming age. So it's really great to see kids playing. That's basically what this poem's about. Puts you in a good mood. It makes you think that life is worth living. To each his sufferings, all are men condemned alike to groan, the tender for another's pain, the unfeeling for his own. So remember that, that Johnson has said something similar in The Vanity of Human Wishes. That is, that even if you're virtuous and lead your life well and everything's fine, there's still going to be the daughter whose child dies and the friend who dies too young and... Um, the fact that we care about others means that we're going to experience um, sorrow and pain, even if we arrange our own affairs with luck and with skill. Um, so the tender are, is condemned to groan for another's pain, the unfeeling for his own. Yet, ah, 
But why tell them this, or why teach this poem, really? Yet I, uh, why should they know their fate, since sorrow never comes too late, and happiness too swiftly flies? Thought would destroy their paradise. No more. That is, let's stop. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Famous line from um, this poem. Is that the word that breeze comes from? Yeah. Yeah, that's where ignorance is bliss comes from. Um, and the whole saying is, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Um, so, um, but the question is, is that right? So the poem, in effect, is saying that um, thought does destroy paradise, but thought is what we do. Thought is our vocation. Um, but what thought thinks itself to is its own grimness, is, um, the, is the grimness of um, the truth about human experience. Um, the same sort of thing is what's going on in the even more famous elegy written in a country churchyard, although it's interesting to know to notice that there, he's not saying that adult life is bad. Um, he's actually, it's the adults in elegy um, in a country churchyard that have the experience of innocence um, that the kids have in the Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College. Um, that is, you know, they all had their gay and giddy lives with the kids glad that their father's coming home and so on. Um, and yeah, they all died. But at least this has, um, it's structured the same way. Um, it's a more complex poem by far, um, but it's structured the same way as the Odo and Distant Prospect of Eton College, um, which is that you can see um, what will happen to those who can't see what will happen. And that kind of double vision experience, um, that stereoscopic experience, of innocence and experience. That's the that's the proto-Blakean um, uh, aspect of gray. Um, the curfew. Well, we have time for a little bit of it. Um, the curfew tolls. We should just look at the greatest hits part of it. The curfew tolls. The knell of parting day. The lowing herd winds slowly o'er the lee. The plowman homeward plods his weary way and leaves the world to darkness and to me. Um, was that line, did people recognize that line, leaves the world to darkness and to me? That's one of the most famous lines in the poem. Um, so the idea is everyone is going home except him, Gray. This is Gray speaking in his own person. Um, and he is staying here in the country churchyard. Everyone is going home, they have their jobs, their day is over. Um, but he is lost in thought, and what he's lost in thought about is the past and about death and about the evanescence of human life. But again, unlike in Thompson, in Gray, what you're getting is not only description, but the perspective of the describer. And that describer, what we know about that describer is how he describes. That is, the world looks to him a certain way. Uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein in the 20th century, the early Wittgenstein, um, will say a famous aphorism in the Tractatus Logica Philosophicus is, the world of the happy man is different from the world of the unhappy man. 
um, because it's the world as another famous phrase in Vic and China is the world as I found it. The world that a happy person finds is a different world from a world that an unhappy person finds. So again, part of romanticism is seeing is also expressing. How you see expresses who and how you are. Um, so he here he's a seer, and what he sees is darkness and um, sees from that perspective. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left, but let's go to Young to, I mean, we should spend more time on Gray. Maybe we will. Um, although you may just adore smart and just want to um, spend time thinking this is great um, about smart. But let's go back to a moment in Young. This is in the Oxford um, and not in the, sorry, in the um, Oxford Anthology, <laughs> in the Oxford Anthology of English Literature, not the Oxford Book of 18th Century Verse. Um, and it is, uh, I lost the page, and you wouldn't know the page. Um, so find Young in the Oxford Anthology of English Literature. Um, 641. 641, and alas, in my edition, it's 2187. Why do you need to know that? I don't know. But I thought you should know. Um, and How many knights were there? Nine. And um, Blake then wrote um, a poem called The Four Zoas, which is also nine nights long. Um, so if you go to Night the Sixth, which is the second to last page of Young. Um, this is a passage that was, again, very important to Wordsworth. Wordsworth, as you'll see when we do him, had very mixed feelings about Gray. Um, so did Dr. Johnson. But Wordsworth quotes a lot of Gray, and he says, this part is good, this part is crap, this part is good, this part is crap. Um, and the good part for Wordsworth is always um, the part where Gray is, as Wordsworth puts it, speaking in unaffected diction in the natural language of um, normal people. Um, the Elegy in the Country Churchyard is partly about that, but then he says, but Gray is always going after classical style also, and that's where he's no good at all. Um, Wordsworth had some desire to split himself from Gray um, because he was a poet. So here is Young speaking. Lorenzo, by the way, is um, the young man to whom the speaker of Night Thoughts is speaking. Um, he's shallow, and uh, Young has to set him straight on things, like that life is really miserable. Um, Where thy true treasure? Gold says, not in me, and not in me the diamond. So that's not where you can find wealth. Gold is poor. India's insolvent. Seek it in thyself. Seek in thy naked self and find it there. In being so descended, formed, endowed, sky-born, sky-guided, sky-returning race. So again, it's um, where treasure is is in the perceiver and not in the thing perceived. Erect, immortal, rational, divine, in senses. Senses is going to be is going to govern the next few lines. In senses which inherit earth and heavens, enjoy the various riches nature yields far nobler, give the riches they enjoy. That is, 
the riches that we enjoy, we don't enjoy through the senses. The senses give us those riches. Without our senses, it doesn't matter what's around us. Um, the wealth is not in the gold. The wealth is in the eye that perceives the gold. So you don't need the gold. You only need to cultivate your own perceptiveness. This, again, is a focus on the perceiving subject. They give the riches they enjoy, give taste to fruits and harmony to groves. Their radiant beams to gold and gold's bright fire. So gold has its radiant beams because we can see it. It has its bright fire because, as a function of our vision, not because it actually is radiant or bright yellow or producing bright fire. It's the eyes that see these things that interpret electromagnetic radiation as bright fire and radiance. Um, take, it's our senses that take in at once the landscape of the world at a small inlet which a grain might close. So our eyes are so small, and yet we take the entire world in through this small inlet which a grain, just a pebble in the eyes could close it. A grain could blind us and half create the wondrous world they see. Um, so that phrase, half create, that's the phrase Wordsworth picks up in Tinternet Abbey. Um, the world, both what we half create and what perceive. Um, nature is not something outside of us that we float around in. Nature is what we see in the world if we see with enough power and thoughtfulness. And again, that's the approach towards romanticism. Um, okay, the smart I think you'll like. I really hope you'll like. Um, and so you should read that for Tuesday. I have some more papers for you. Um,